Well, welcome to Logically Faithful, where we are engaging culture redemptively and addressing suffering productively. Primarily, we're using the concepts in apologetics, primarily in uh, philosophical thinking, science, psychology, and things of that nature, to help us understand and ground meaning and significance in life, primarily in the areas of faith and in the uh, areas of the Christian worldview, and trying to figure out how that actually works in the real world. Uh, I have a very special guest today, Dr. Chris Firestone. Welcome. Thank you, Tilden. It was great to be here with you. I know you and I go back a long way and haven't had a chance to speak like this in a while, so I'm excited to be able to dialogue with you. I'm so happy to have you, brother. Uh, so let me give you your proper introductions, my brother. Uh, Dr. Chris Firestone, PhD, uh, does a, a lot of work on the philosophical foundations of Immanuel Kant, one of the greatest thinkers in world history. Let's deal with him, and he's written a multiple study of books on the issue. Also, um, you are an actor. <laughs> Killing Poe and The Last Wish, love to expand on those and, and see what else you're working on and you're cooking up in the background there in your philosophical mind, uh, applying that in the, in the area of the, uh, in the arts. So um, the uh, books you have, uh, which I recommend for others as well, is uh, Kant and the New Philosophy of Religion, uh, co-edited with Stephen Palmquist, University of Indiana Press, Theology in the Transcendental Boundaries of Reason, Ashgate. The Defense of Kant's Religion, authored of Nathan Jacobs, great guy. Uh, Kant and Theology on the Boundaries of Religion, really pushing those boundaries, aren't we, brother? <laughs> Always. And the Persistence of the Sacred in Modern Thought. Can't seem to get away from that one. Uh, Kant and the Question of Theology, also by Jacobs and James Joyner, Cambridge University Press. I congratulate you on those. Those are very difficult to publish in, let alone get recognized in. And finally, uh, Emmanuel Kant, a companion to his philosophy and a prospect for theology. Uh, forthcoming, I think that's, that's forthcoming, is right. And most of all, you're the father of five and my friend. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here. Um... Boy, any one of those books we could talk about for the next hour here, uh, Keldon. Where do you want to start? Well, let's start with Kant. So in the area of the transcendental, tell us about Immanuel Kant and his contribution to uh, the general Western hemisphere or history in general. Why is Kant such an important figure? And uh, you'll link that back up to his philosophy of uh, religion and the meaning of life. We'll get back into that as we move on. Sure. Well... You know, uh, when I started out in philosophy, there were a lot of different figures that you can study. And if you're wise in how you pursue your advanced education, you'll study somebody who you can learn from. And uh, it became very clear to me early on that Immanuel Kant was one of those figures that was uh, villainized in some ways, celebrated in some ways, but a, a monumental thinker that I could learn a lot from. And when you're diving into advanced education, and doing a deep dive, you want to, uh, you know, study something that uh, ha has a deep well and that uh, you can actually learn something and apply uh, to life. And so Immanuel Kant was that person for me. He comes at the end of the Enlightenment uh, period. Sometimes he's called the watershed of the Enlightenment, and that's for good reason. He takes the entire epistemic turn that happens with Descartes and Bacon and works itself through thinkers like uh, Hume and Leibniz, and he um, he brings the best insights of those thinkers together into a higher order system that he calls transcendental philosophy. And that is really a pivot point to what we're seeing today in contemporary thought. 
Kant's famous transcendental turn is sometimes called the turn to the subject. And uh, the turn to the subject means that what the human beings are vital contributors to our understanding of the world and our place in it. It doesn't mean that all meaning is grounded in the human, but we have to begin by first assessing what it is that we bring to the table, as it were. And Immanuel Kant was the uh, first philosopher, really, to, uh, to, to take stock of reasons, contributions uh, to, to what we know about the world. Interesting. Okay, so he's definitely a figure not to be contended with and a major contributor. Um, uh, Professor Chris, let me ask you, your screen is shaking a little bit. Um, try to get that one on that area. Uh, just a logistical issue there. Yeah. Okay. That's probably because um, I'm getting excited and I'm shaking everything around me. <laughs> well, this is definitely <laughs> something to be excited about. All right, let's talk about Kant in his, um, his area on reason. And so his uh, critique of contemporary reason and practical reason. He seems to indicate to us either directly and indirectly in different ways that God is such a transcendent figure, specifically in the area of religion trans in that area, that we should not be using reason to arrive at that. Rather, um, there are different ways of understanding that. Unpack that for us, because it's been used as a major critique of, of religion and philosophy of religion, uh, Kant has been at least. Yeah, well, in the, in the first critique, Immanuel Kant's whole approach um, is to ask the question, what are the necessary conditions for the possibility of experience? And this is what the term transcendental means. It's sometimes called the Copernican revolution in philosophy. Mm. And when he, uh, when he made that turn, he discovered, at least in his mind, he discovered the fact that space and time and the 12 categories were the necessary conditions of the mind that take the sense datum that comes to us in in a, in in a, in a great quantity and organizes into a discernible experience. Now, one of the twelve categories was one that was recognized by David Hume, and that is causation. Okay. Causation is not strictly speaking experienced through the senses. David Hume thought it was a habit of the mind, something that happens that you sort of assume as habitual actions, and and you, you see relations of concepts one to another, and you kind of assume it. But that struck against the very heart of empiricism. That is, everything is traceable to the senses except causation, which is supposed to be how science is grounded. Right. So how is it that science is grounded on causation if it's not, strictly speaking, experience? And so Immanuel Kant came along and said, well, causation is one of the, uh, the, the categories of the mind that make experience possible. That is, it's an active a priori category of the mind that uh, organizes our experiences into a discernible form. Now, the reason that's important for your question is that um, cause, you know, if everything that we experience through the senses is organized by space-time and the 12 categories, how is it that you could possibly experience God uh, as a finite form or, uh, 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 as you said, conditioned by the senses and the organizing principles of the mind? Right. In other words, everything that we experience has to be orderly, has to have shape, has to have a unity and plurality, has to have causation and substance. But God is infinite. At least any, any sort of normal conception or traditional conception of God has omniscience, omnipotence, omnibenevolence, and so forth. Right. None of those things admit to having edges or form. Mm -hmm. How is it that you could possibly experience 
God through the five senses if, in fact, everything that comes to us is organized by the fundamental principles, the organizing principles of the mind. Right. So right away in the first critique, it appears that God becomes what he calls a problematic idea. Because even if God wanted to appear to us, he can't appear to us as he is in himself. We don't have the receptive capabilities for handling that. Mm. Um, it would overwhelm us. It's, it's too much for us, um, and so forth. And so any appearance of God would have to be finite in form for us to actually uh, apprehend it, understand it, and so forth. And then we could never know that it really was God. And this is the sort of problematic that the first critique sets up. And uh, Kant recognizes the issue. He, he calls God, freedom, and immortality three uh, foundational functions fundamental problems as soon as you start thinking in transcendental terms. And um, he sets out to uh, resolve those because he understands that those three principles, freedom, God, and immortality, are fundamental to human flourishing, and yet we don't, we can't, strictly speaking, experience them through the five senses. Fascinating. Freedom, God, and immortality. Um, they're fundamental, fundamentally necessary for us to make sense of justice in the universe and of our own um, hope and meaning. So then how does Kant resolve these? Because many people stop there and they camp, they camp on that aspect and dismiss the transcendental outright, saying, well, we're not able to grasp it. And if we can grasp it, we can't handle it. So let's just move on beyond it. Um, well, one of, the, one of the things I think Kant recognizes immediately is that reason would prove itself impotent if it wasn't able to handle these uh, crucial concepts in some measure. And, uh, um, and so he says there's a kind of a hunger for reason to address questions that it naturally asks itself. Hmm. And so the first question that he's addressed is, what can I know? And for Kant, knowledge is always going to be organized by space-time and the 12 categories and the five senses. And God, freedom, and immortality cannot be proper objects of knowledge if knowledge is defined as sense intuition and concept united in a judgment. This is the whole point of the first critique. But that doesn't mean that we are uh, without resource in reason. Kant says we must make a transition to other questions that reason has to answer lest it prove itself impotent or incapable of dealing with life's big questions. Okay. So the next question he takes to be a natural question is, what ought I to do? Now that I see the world, and I understand the world through my senses, I see lots of stuff going on, and the choices before me are extraordinary, and, and the sheer diversity of number and, and opportunities and so forth that are, that are presented to me. So the next question he asks is, what ought I to do? Right. And, he, 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 and he goes on to apply the very same transcendental method to that question, what are the necessary conditions, he asked, for the possibility of doing the right thing or being good? Mm. And so that's the second question that he raises as he makes a transition from the question of science and knowledge to the question of ought or action. And he thinks those two are very different questions, and they require different subjective components, uh, you might say, innate within reason active properties of the mind to properly understand what you ought to do. And doesn't he take that next level? This is absolutely fascinating, by the way. Instead of, so instead of camping us there, he expands it to a practical application. So 
he begins to expand, Emmanuel Kant does, on one of the most important um, points made in all of ethical history, the categorical imperative. Yes. How does that link to his understanding of the transcendental? Absolutely. It's a great question. Notice that freedom, immortality, and God are three necessary ideas, he thinks, for human flourishing, and yet we can't experience them through the five senses. Can't experience freedom because causation is always an organizing principle. But Kant says you can nevertheless know freedom. And you can know freedom, says, says Kant, when it is tethered to universal moral law. Mm. You see, human beings in Kant's anthropology have at least three different levels of incentives that drive us. He says the, the lowest level of incentive is what he calls the predisposition to animality, which is a fancy way of saying uh, procreation or sex, uh, shelter, food, everything that we share with every other beast of the field. That's a predisposition to animality. These are basic human needs and desires. The next level of, of uh, incentive for human beings is what he calls the predisposition uh, uh, to humanity. And that is our tendency to compare ourselves with other people. What do they have and what do I have? What do they have that I want and what do I have that they want? Um, and so, uh, our, our, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, I wear a sports coat and shirt like I do is because I want to be like other professors. Uh, you know, uh, I got my nice chair here. I got my, my rack of books up here and so forth. The predisposition to, uh, to uh, humanity drives all of us to try to fit into society, as it were. But at the apex of our incentives, things kind of, see, those, those two incentives are common to every other animal. You see, a tiger has base incentives, and a tiger wants to be like other tigers. Right. Um, human beings have the same thing, but human beings have a spark of difference that separates us from every other known creature, and that is rationality itself. Hmm. And this is something that goes way back in, in, in most philosophical traditions, by the way, recognizes that what makes human beings uniquely special is the multifaceted ways in which rationality plays itself out in our experience of the world. For Kant, when he asks the question of what I ought to do, I am driven by certain incentives, but there's one organizing incentive that he calls the categorical imperative, which is a big word. It simply means the moral law. And this isn't a, 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 a clunky kind of law, you know, that we apply to all of our actions. It's what you might call a law-generating principle. That is, every time you are considering an action, says Kant, you're acting on the basis of some kind of principle that any rational agent could act on. Um, if that principle on which you're acting could be made universal for all rational agents, then it's a moral law. But if the principle on which you're acting is essentially selfish or couldn't be universalized and make this world a harmonious place, then it is not a moral uh, uh, maxim or law. And so it's a real simple generating principle, and that principle should order things, Khan, all our other incentives. As soon as one of your other incentives wars with the moral law as your highest incentive, he calls that corruption. We know we ought not to do that. All of our other incentives are good. It's good to be like other human beings. It's good to uh, to have shelter and eat 
food and procreate and so forth, but it always has to be done for Kant under the organizing principle of the moral law. That's what makes human beings truly human. And so um, that's his. Uh, that's a, that's a very quick sketch, you might say. That's interesting. Okay. How? So let's yeah. let's uh, let's camp on that a little bit. So making humans truly quote human with a capital H is to be those who follow the moral law, right, or the guiding force uh, for that. That's right. So unpack that moral law for us. Um, there are different okay. traditions in the natural law tradition um, uh, with Aristotle and others, Aquinas, who argue for it. Now, Kant is not necessarily in that tradition per se. He's more in deontological ethics, is he not? So h- help us connect that back to the immortality God and the meaning of life. Okay. How does that okay. work? Okay, absolutely. You've got to recognize that Kant is living in what I'm going to call an epistemic age. And so the first question he's asking is, about knowledge and about reason's contribution to experience prior to it being employed. You see, some of the other systems you're talking, let's say utilitarianism or even natural law, they are looking at nature and they're looking at pleasure and they're looking at outcomes. Kant is not looking at any of those things because those things are secondary to the assessment of what reason's contribution to our experience is. Mm. So when he's looking at the question of right action, he's asking, what are the necessary conditions within reason for us to even think of a right action? We, first of all, Kant says, we have to be free. If I'm not free, then I can't possibly do a right action. It's like a robot. A robot is not responsible, and the person who made the robot might be responsible, but the robot itself doesn't have freedom. In the same way, if I were to strap a you know, uh, dynamite on you uh, and and have a trigger and say, go rob a bank. We're we're not going to hold Keldon Swice responsible since I'm the one behind the whole thing. Your freedom's being taken away from you. You're not responsible when freedom isn't present. So one of the conditions for the possibility of there being a good action at all is that we are free. Now, freedom is a necessary but not a sufficient condition for right action. You see, freedom has to always be tethered to some kind of incentive, some kind of desire that we have. You see, tigers have freedom tethered to their desire to eat, yeah. <laughs> right? Or, yeah. um, and and they're doing what tigers do. So if you well, go in a tiger's cage, they choose different ways to eat. They choose different. Yeah, ones. you go in a tiger's cage. You're responsible, not the tiger. He's just doing what tigers do. Um, you know, you can't hold him morally culpable. Now, we might shoot the tiger because we don't like the fact that he'll eat humans, you know, and so forth. But that's beside the point. Now, here's what here's the kicker here. Freedom, when it's tethered to our base incentives, is not freedom at all. Mm. Freedom, when it's tethered to our desire to be like other human beings, is not freedom at all. Freedom, when it's tethered to the moral law, organizing all of our other desires, that's freedom indeed. That's the ability to stand against the current of our inclinations, these base incentives that would drag us down into being more like animals than human beings. And freedom, in that sense, is freedom indeed. So freedom, if we're ever going to be truly free for Kant, has to be tethered to the moral law. It has to be, as it were, in harmony with or, or, or a reciprocal relationship with. As soon as another incentive wars with the moral law to take over your life, let's say it be drugs, or sex, or some other thing that you've got going, you're no longer, as it were, acting humanly. (laughs) 
you are you are you are you you know your base incentives are usurping the moral law for your highest authority in your life. And uh, I think everybody's experienced that kind of thing, and we all have um, recognizes when we're out of control, <laughs> when uh, when the moral law is no longer operative in the human condition. And um, you know you want to be around people where the moral law is operative. Things can't band together with them so that you have a hope of creating a context where you celebrate the moral community and the moral law. That's where you'll find meaning. That's where you'll find freedom, not in those other places. And that's where you will celebrate the base incentives as a gift, as it were, rather than as something that will control your life and make you less than what you truly are meant to be. Fascinating. So this goes back to an Augustinian concept. A true free man is not one who does what he wants or desires, but does what he ought to do. So then that leads us more on a, let's dig deeper in it. Let's define the moral law. Yes. Yeah. Well, Kant has is very, very famously, he's got three different variations of it. And there's lots of dispute out in the literature, whether or not these three are in fact, uh, coherent with one another if they're slightly different from one another. Okay. But the uh, the most basic version of the categorical imperative is to is to always act uh, according to that rule or maxim that you could will to become a universal law. So let me give you a concrete example. Um, yeah. You know, let's say that you uh, find a you know you find a bag of money on the ground okay okay and now you have a decision to do what to do with it well you have anytime you do something you're going to do something based upon principle things come what are the kind of what are the principles on which you're acting so if you take it and hide it stick it up in your attic and so forth a very big human temptation to do such things you're acting on the principle that if i ever find something that's not mine and no one sees me, then I will keep it as mine and salt it away for the future. Right. Now, can, is that a principle that all human beings could live on and the world be a harmonious place? I think anybody who has lived in communities like I have, uh, in very difficult communities, recognizes that that's not a happy principle to live life on. That doesn't create harmonious communities. That doesn't, that doesn't show human beings rising above their animal natures. Uh, that's not a principle that all human beings could live on and the world be the kind of place we want to live in. Um, and so that is not a principle that is generated by the moral law. It's generated by some other law of our own making. We might come up with a better principle. Now, now the whole notion here that we can come up with a perfect law uh -huh. may be pie in the sky. It may be difficult to do, but we kind of know it when we see it. Like, you know, every time I find something that isn't obviously mine, perhaps, what I will do is attempt to find the owner in a way proportionate to the object found. That is, if I find a diamond ring, I'm going to try really hard to find the person who owns that thing. But if I find a nickel, I might just put it in my pocket, look around. It, it's, it's, you know. In other words, at least that rule is a little closer to a rule that could be universalized in order to make the world a harmonious and better place. So this is Kant's point. Act according to those rules that uh, that uh, could be made universal laws for all rational agents. Okay. And so every time you're about to do something, you're going to act on some principles. 
if those principles on which you're acting could be made universal law, then you're acting morally or, say, more more morally than you otherwise would be. Um, and that's something Kant thinks we all know. We all know deep down inside. That the, so the reason is, in, the, in a sense, commanding this duty to us, and that if we're going to be truly free, we have to stand up to it and be able to do the right thing. But uh, admittedly, it's hard. Right. And it's hard precisely because one of the words you said earlier, we have this inherent sense of justice. And justice is attempting to tell us that if we don't take what's do us right now, we're never going to get it. And right. if somebody else is going to get it, we're not going to get it. Uh, you know, we all have that inclination, as it were, uh, kind of buried within us. So we can talk about that concept a little, little as we go further on. But Kant thinks that that's mixing perspectives. That is not doing the right thing. That's becoming more of a vigilante to try to do the right thing on behalf of God, as it were, <laughs> rather than on behalf of the moral law. Moral law commands us uh, what to do, and we have a decision with, with the use of our freedom whether or not we're going to obey what the moral law dictates to us. Sister, so you said there are two other formations of this uh, imperative. Yeah. Um, one of them is act as though you're a member of the kingdom of ends, he calls it. Um, in other words, act in such a way that you are trying to make everyone around you a morally better agent and a part of the community that you want to be a part of. And so, uh, in other words, treat everyone with respect as though they are ends in themselves and not means to your ends. You see, one of the problems with utilitarianism, of course, is that we tend to use the ends justify the means and we can use people to kind of get to our own ends. But Immanuel Kant says, again, that's mixing perspectives prematurely. Reason is commanding us to treat other people with respect and to treat other people as human beings capable of being obedient to the moral law and treat them always as though they're intending to do that, even though they're struggling just like you and I are to try to be obedient to the moral law. Mm. So treat others as ends of themselves, as it were. As um, intrinsically valuable. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a way of understanding the human person. That you, everybody has an inherent dignity, thinks Kant, because they're human and reason means that they're freedom and capable of being obedient to the moral law. This is and fascinating. for that reason, they have a kind of dignity to them that we, we have to treat them uh, with respect. With that dignity. There's something there in the transcendental principle in theology called the Imago Dei, the image of God in each one of us, is to be treated with that, uh, not as instrumental value, right? Not to be treated as a means to an end, but something deeper than that. Uh, unpack that for us in Kantian theology or philosophy of what is it about an individual that's so sacred and special that we should give them a dignity and treat them with respect, but there are certain things we would draw the line on, such as things that people choose autonomously, individually, with consent, like maybe prostitution or self-torture or even suicide. People may individually choose these things, and do we contribute to that, even though that individual chose that? As a lot of my students struggle to see exactly what's wrong with these on a deep level if the individual chose it. So how do you unpack that? Yeah, well, those are very, very deep questions, Gildun, and very important questions. Um, You're a philosopher. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Well, um, you know, you know if, we, if we keep this in a Kantian context, right. what he is essentially doing is, a, is an epistemic exercise 
to do a transcendental analysis of what contribute. I call them the superpowers of the human being. Okay. What are we capable of that no other creature is capable of? And I think there's four of these things that Kant articulates. Number one, we can experience the world in a three-dimensional, textured, vivid perspective through the five senses. Uh, secondly, we can experience the world as good or as evil. Mm. You see, no other creatures really can do that. <laughs> no other creatures can make that distinction. No other creatures can aspire to the good like we can. Um, you know, when we're teaching our kids, we teach them how to be better people, stuff like that. They, you know, the other creatures don't do this. We have this kind of innate capacity to use freedom and the moral law, which are rooted in our rational nature and things, God, to improve, to get better, to have a revolution, not to be self-centered, but to be other-centered and so forth. The other superpower that we have is the experience of beauty and uh, purposiveness. Mm. We haven't talked a lot about that one yet, no. but this is a really important one that is oftentimes overlooked in the Kantian enterprise because it knits together all the others. Um, and so our, whenever we put on these earbuds and we're listening to our songs or we're looking at a beautiful sunset or we're seeing uh, uh, beauty in some measure, for Kant, that is an experience of purposiveness that no other creature can, can sense, can see. It's kind of the superpower that we have to create art and to appreciate natural beauty. And it has a distinct role in the human condition, things Kant. If you don't have that activating, then you're always going to be wobbling. Mm. And the wobble that he's talking about is the wobble that happens when you try to be moral and the world doesn't recognize your efforts. Um, so, for example, let me give you a really simple example. It happens to me every day. You know, if I'm driving the speed limit and I miss the light, and the guy who's flying past me at, you know, you know, 20 miles an hour over the speed limit makes the light, and then you watch him and he makes the next light, and he makes the next light and the next light, and you, you end up 10 minutes behind. And you think to yourself, what kind of justice is this? I'm trying to be doing the right thing here, and nature doesn't reward me for that. It rewards the guy who's Who breaks stealing, the rules. Right. Breaks the rules. Who's doing all the things wrong and they know that they're wrong and yet they're kind of getting their way. Well, when we experience beauty, thinks Kant, we feel a sense of harmony that gives the soul the moral courage to go on. Not to have to get justice every time it does the right thing. Mm. Because the world speaks to us through beauty that this world will make sense at the end of the day. And the person who is running roughshod over their moral disposition to break the rules will one day run off the cliff <laughs> somewhere down the road. Um, and, uh, and, and, and Kant thinks it's the experience of beauty when you're listening to that perfect song that, that knits together and says this world makes sense for a moment. That's a uniquely human experience. That's an experience that has a purpose. That purpose is to knit together the human condition and to help our disposition to grow. Um, if it's going retrograde, if you never get to beauty, if you're going down the, the path of, 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 as it were, immorality, embracing the dark side of life, um, you got nothing left to knit together. Your disposition is seared. Your conscience is seared. And uh, your 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 uh, your humanness is mere potential rather than being actual, and so um, 
Kant thinks that that superpower is really important. That is the experience of beauty and purposiveness in the world. That's a wonderful. Testifies to us that there's yeah. something more to this world than meets the eye. Mm. That's actually beautiful. It's it's, it's, it's transcendent in its perspective. See that? And yeah, it's, it's beautiful in the good. He's got three critiques, famously, right? The first one's on knowledge, the second one is on morality, and the third one is on beauty. And he thinks that these things are, uh, as it were, synthesized in reason, in, in one great uh, 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 set of superpowers that humans have access to. Um, and uh, they're not always activated in people. That is, uh, you know, some of us um, just never get there, thinks no. Kant. Um, and yet, um, and yet they're really important to, uh, being truly human. Let me, um, let me push back on something here. This is a fascinating quote I found by, um, Iris Murdoch, uh, in her book on the good, where she writes about the, um, the Kantian man, it's called the sovereign or the sovereignty, or excuse me, um, the sovereignty of the good. And in that book, uh, she argues that the, the Kantian man or the true human man is a big problem for ethics. Uh, and I want to get your feedback. I want to uh, play the show for you on the screen and get your feedback on that because the concept of the good sure. connected to the transcendent, connected to what it means to be human. Um, let me see if I can put this up here in a moment. And at, at the way she ends it is kind of shocking to me. But at the same time, it's real. And I, I want to uh, get your feedback on that. Okay. So here you're going to share my screen and I'll show it to you. There it is. Okay. So Iris Murdoch and the Sovereignty of the Good. Can you see that? I can. My, you know, my eyes aren't as good as they used to be, but I think I got it. Hello. Looks like I got a pop up here. There you go. All right. Let me make it a little bigger. There you go. All right, so I'll read uh, bits and pieces of this and give you feedback. <laughs> so Kant abolished God and made God, made man God in his stead, she says. We are still living in the age of the Kantian man. The Kantian man God's conclusive, conclusive exposure of the so-called proofs of the existence of God, his analysis of the limitation of the speculative reason, together with his eloquent portrayal of the dignity of rational man, has resulted, or results, which might possibly dismay him. How recognizable, how familiar to us is the man so beautifully portrayed in the Gugud, I can't pronounce this, uh, the Germanistic terms here, um, who confronted even with Christ turns away to consider the judgment of his own conscience and to hear the voice of his own reason. Stripped of the exiguous metaphysical background which Kant prepared to allow him, this man with us free let me get up a smaller here. Uh, background. Oh, it's disappearing. Uh, all right. Independent, free, lonely, powerful, responsible, brave. The hero of so many novels and books and philosophy. The reason detraire of this attractive but misleading creature is not far to seek. He is the offspring of the age of science, confidently rational, yet increasingly aware of his alienation from the material universe, which his discoveries reveal. Since not, he is not Hegelian, Kant, not Hegel, as provided Western ethics with this dogmanating image. His alienation is without cure. He is the ideal citizen of the ideal state, the warning held up by tyrants. He is the virtue which the age requires and admits courage. It is not such a very long step from Kant to Nietzsche, from Nietzsche to existentialism and the Anglo-Saxon ethical doctrines 
with which some closely resemble it. And this is where I want to end it, and this is where she ends it. In fact, Kant's man had already received a glorious incarnation a century earlier in the work of Milton. His proper name is Lucifer. <laughs> what she's saying is that Kant has elevated reason to the level where reason becomes or replaces our submission to God in the theological sense in the Enlightenment. We should count on that. Um, well, this is a. Awesome. This, I'm, you know, I'm glad you brought this uh, this reading to the fore because it it uh, illustrates an important principle, and that is. When you're reading these thinkers, you need to read them for yourself, um, right? Kantians, she's absolutely right. What Kant has, has Kant has been received, and if you think of the left-wing Hegelians, for example, that she cites the uh, you know Feuerbach and Nietzsche, Marx, and so forth, those folks have run with a version of Kant, which is really what I like to call half of the first critique, and not all of his writings. Um, they make Kant out to be the fountainhead, if you will, of, of humanism, of atheism, agnosticism, non-realism, uh, etc. Right. And that's, those are positions Kant explicitly exposes as being wrong-headed. Um, but what they're doing essentially is following a tradition of interpretation that says, we like what Kant's doing in the first half of the first critique, but his, outlined a plan to unpack what I'm calling the superpowers of reason. We don't like that very much because we like the fact that he kicked God and, 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 and freedom and morality uh, and uh, immortality out the door in the first critique. We don't want him back in uh, to the philosophy. And so you'll get a stream of thought emanating from Kant uh, that's capitalized on by certain British interpreters in uh, logical positivism and other other positions that believe they're tracing themselves back to Kant, but Kant, of course, would be totally appalled by uh, by this turn in uh, in thinking. Now, that is not to say that his philosophy can't be uh, um, uh, you know um, militarized or 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 whatever to make to uh, to entail these ends. It certainly can and has been. I've done a lot of my work in Kant studies to show that he is not the uh, the uh, sort of grandfather, if you will, of any of these positions. He's arguing very uh, strongly against these positions. There's another stream of Kant interpretation, uh, what I call the mainstream, that is much more theologically friendly, much more open-ended, and much more engaging of the human condition in terms of our moral strivings our aesthetic aptitudes, and our religious beliefs. And that stream doesn't get quite as much attention. And the reason it doesn't, and this is one of the books you mentioned, uh, particularly the book um, uh, Kant and the New Philosophy of Religion, that very early book that I did. Yes. The reason that reading of Kant doesn't get as much attention is it is a much larger but less unified reception. You have a much smaller minority, which you might say, reception that is unified in its atheism, non-realism, and a secularization thesis. Not really a lot to disagree with there. And it tends to be a formidable, you know, I don't want to put percentages to it, but I'd say 25%. Mm. And the vast majority 
of the streams that emanate from Kant are much more friendly to things like morality and aesthetics and religious experience. But they disagree with each other and how that plays out. And therefore, there's lots of debate in the field. And if you do any work in Kant studies, you can see this immediately. There's a ton of these types of thinkers out there who are what I call theologically or uh, religiously affirmative in their outlook but they war with one another for what that actually means and looks like. Mm. And so, um, so she is, she's absolutely right by picking out a certain type of Kantian man that has emerged. And that is really, um, I, probably is one of the main uh, reasons why our culture has gotten ourselves into predicament and we're in today is that this negative stream of Kant studies has really ma- maintained a unified and vocal outlook, and it is um, it is really uh, what you might say um, um, uh, coloring all of uh, all of the academic world because of its uh, unified vocal outlook. I see that happening um, in the in Islamic studies, where we comp and camp, excuse me, on the life of Muhammad when he was in Medina, and ignore the fact when he went to Mecca. Right, he was a different kind of figure. One was a warlord and a, you know, a major political figure, and the other was more of a religious guru. Um, but to look at one and not, and not look at the other is to not be fair to the real life of the real Muhammad, who was a you know, combination of different things. Um, uh, it would seem to be fair to say with Kant, you actually have to read the thing in context, which is a shocking thing to do. <laughs> now, yeah, I, you know, there's two types of uh, readers of Kant, and it's the ones that read only the first half of the first critique, and it's the others that follow him on those very difficult pathway of the second, third critique and his writings on religion. Mm. That's precisely where I think he is at his very best. And it's often the place that uh, those who want to unify around some of his uh, early insights really want to cut off at the root. Uh, Very difficult to do because Kant is pretty insistent that reason has to be able to address the questions that it asks itself, lest it goes back to moral nihilism, mm. lest it goes backward in its uh, outlook, and, and Kant is really not prepared to, uh, to, to, to entertain that possibility. Let's talk about the man Kant um, and, and draw this back to your own experience. Kant was a believer, wasn't he? He wasn't an atheist or a skeptic of the transcendental. He believed in it. He just had some limits to it from his contemporaries in the religious sphere. Is that right? Yeah, well, you know, uh, in the first half of his career, he was a pretty traditional um, a theist, you might say Christian theist. And then he has the Copernican Revolution, which he kind of goes silent religiously. That is, he doesn't, he no longer shares where he actually stands after, say, 1770 or 1781, depending upon uh, where you want to locate that, that turn. Um, and the reason, you know, the reason for that is debated. Some want to say that he has, uh, you know, a turn away from the received religious traditions of the time, in particular the Christian ones, and uh, um, and, and so that would feed into the narrative that you know he's really atheist, agnostic, or or, or, or non-realist in some way, or at best a deist. Um, but uh, the other way of looking at that is, and this is the way I typically uh, look at Kant, is he decides that in order to make headway in the field, to truly ground science and the other experiences of the world that we have, 
we need to do an analysis of pure reason. And this is what he thinks is the philosopher's path. When you do an analysis of pure reason, you're doing it unemployed. That is, you're not looking at empirical tradition. You're not looking at the world as it currently is. You're asking the question, what are the necessary conditions within reason that makes the types of experiences that we have possible? And um, when you do that, you're no longer in a position to make declarative judgments about empirical matters. To do so is to pull yourself away from the philosophical task, which is to ask what reason contributes to those who do make those judgments. So Kant, I think, self-consciously pulls away from any kind of, let's say, empirical judgments about the world as such, like history, what actually happened in history, uh, you know, things like who is Muhammad or who is Jesus. He pulls away from those things because he takes the philosopher's vocation very seriously. That is, what are the necessary conditions with re within reason that make the kinds of experiences that we have possible? Once he finishes that task, then it's the time to employ it in the, what he calls the higher faculties. And the higher faculties he identifies as medicine, uh, law, and theology. And in those places, we have the mind, body, and spirit represented, as it were. And, uh, and, uh, um, and, and Kant thinks that that's where empirical judgments are to be made. That's you, you can see what he's up to here. He's not turning his back, per oh. se, on anything. He's actually fulfilling his mission as a philosopher. And, uh, you know, one of the famous things about Kant, is I'm sure every person who's here who's, who's read any intro to uh, work on Kant at all, is that he was known in his later years for going in processionals with students and other faculty to the church door, but not going inside. And the the typical way that that's cast is he's no longer a Christian. Of course, he's not going to go inside. But I think the more charitable way of understanding it is he's a philosopher, and he understands his role within the university context as being a philosopher. He can lead you to the church door, and you have to decide if you're going inside or not. And for him to do it for you is to take away your intentionality, your authenticity, your um freedom. And so, um, you know, it's a precursor, you might say, to Soren Kierkegaard, who would later do very much the same thing with his synonymous writings and other things. And that is to use a literary style that doesn't make the judgments for you. I mean, I can talk till I'm blue in the face and tell you what you should think. Am I doing you any favors in doing that? Kant, Kierkegaard, I think, don't think so. No. They think... Better is to recognize that you're a human being on the quest of life, just like me, asking the big questions and asking what are the conditions, what, what are the resources that I bring to bear as a human being? What are the tools in my toolbox that I can now employ to make those decisions? And those and are the quintessential philosophical questions we all need to. Those are important questions, and he yes. thinks that they're a prolegomena or they're a preface to getting at the big questions at all. I mean, you can dive right into those big questions and be swimming in an ocean of ideas. But until you have the grounding to understand what it is that you're contributing to this discussion from the outset, you're never going to be able to make headway on those questions to any kind of satisfaction. You're always going to be having those late-night conversations with your buddy 
or your friend <laughs> that go in circles and go nowhere. You know, and man, that was a deep that was a deep study we had together. Well, yeah, it was a deep study, but you didn't have an oar, or you didn't have a a runner. <laughs> it kind of says you need a runner, and that is to understand the tools that reason brings to bear on our experiences in the first place. Let me uh, start landing this plane and to honor your time as well. And to ground this now into a practical application for our lives and for my students and for others, other people who are listening. So uh, I have this understanding of reason and I'm critiquing the processes and the background and the presuppositions that I bring to the table and why I believe what I believe and how I believe it. Now I want to apply it as the book of James says, the you know, Faith without works is dead, and or I can just philosophical philosophize, excuse me, in circles like you're saying, but it stops me from opening the church door, or stops me from actually applying that in my life as being a father or a husband or an, an employee. Taking these transcendent principles, bring them out in a moral way to bring real meaning and significance in my life. So, Absolutely. Professor Firestone. To, to end this, here's the question. I want to you know, let you go with it as, as, you, as you wish. There are a lot of people, and people I know personally, who are struggling on a deep existential level with the meaning of life. And generally, they're asking, why is life so hard to me? I, I don't know if I have a reason to continue to live. Um, and there are people really asking that. And, and I want to be able to provide some hope and maybe link it with a Kantian perspective on the transcendent with the moral system. Help uh, speak to those people as we, um, as we, or what would Kant have said uh, to this from your studies? Yeah, well, you know, one of the, um, Kant, Kant says that there's four fundamental questions. And one of the typical ways to misread Kant is to think that this first question, what can I know, is the most important. That's not the most important question. And I don't believe it's the most important question to your listeners here. Mm. Really, the most important question we can ask is his fourth and final question. It's the one that his whole life was questing to answer, and that is, who am I, or what is my place in the world? You know, we all wake up on this journey, and we think it's kind of a strange thing that we find ourselves. You know, I find myself in Deerfield, Illinois, at a particular place and time in history. What's the meaning of this? What's the purpose of my life? Who am I? What is my place in this world? And this is a very fundamental question, thinks Kant. And his entire, his entire philosophical enterprise is, is, is poised to try to help us answer it. Now, I left you a minute ago with the question of beauty. You know, when we experience beauty, we feel a sense of harmony. Like, for a moment, the world makes sense. Everybody who's listened to a song or has that uh, Spotify thing going in your car drives, understands time can just fly when you're and, and for a moment the world makes sense. And then Khan says, but those moments always end. Mm. They're fleeting. Mm. When we try to answer what it is, what, what the purposiveness is that we feel in a moment of beauty, when it all makes sense for a moment, we, we, we find that we can't get our hands around it. Like, we always have a glimmer of justice, a glimmer of hope, a glimmer of purpose, and then it's gone and the hard realities of life hit us again. I got to put food on the table. You know, I, I, I got to find a job. Uh, I got to find a spouse. I got to keep my kids on the straight and narrow path of life. All of these things start warring against this purpose in this that we feel. 
Right. And so this leads Kant to ask this final question, who am I and what is my place in the world? And I think Kant, like Socrates, in, in the good parts of the Western tradition, from Socrates on through to Kant, and every tradition has its good and bad parts, right? And the, and the good side is the recognition that if I'm ever going to know who I am and what my place is in the world, that God has to tell me that. There's no other way that this finite situated human being could ever hope to get to an answer to a question like that. Uh, you know, it's like Socrates says, God alone is wise. The only thing I know is that I don't know, <laughs> right? And uh, it's in this moment that he looks in the religion text and he asks the question, what are the necessary conditions for the possibility of me being well-pleasing to God? At the end of the day, I can please my mother and my father, my sister, my brother. But when I have to end my life, I need to know whether or not I was a steward of the gifts I've been given by the one who gave them to me. And that is a very, very difficult uh, uh, thing. And Kant asks this question, what are the necessary conditions for the possibility of being well-pleasing to God? Because we all know that left to our own devices, we go sideways, right? <laughs> right? That something gets in the way, we become less than we want to be, we're used as objects by others, we feel like we're not important, and all of these things in the world kind of war against our significance. And Kant says, uh, well, there are three, you know, in his religion text, he identifies three things within reason that reason speaks to us, that says we have to believe if we're going to have hope. And they are, rather interestingly, that I'm never going to measure up as I am. Mm. You know, I try to be obedient to the moral law. I try to treat others with respect and as ends of themselves, but I always seem to get it wrong. Um, the second thing we need to believe is that if I'm going to have hope, that God's going to provide me with a new disposition. That is, he's going to have to make me well again, <laughs> somehow. Mm -hmm. Redemption. Um, He's going to have to redeem me, and I'm going to have to lay myself in submission before what he wants for my life. And Kant calls this conversion, right? We need to be converted to the good principle instead of principles that are of our own making. When we choose the good principle, when we choose to believe that God has a plan for our lives, this sort of thing, um, then we can latch hold of his, of his gift and we have hope. And so this is uh, in book two of his religion text. He says, you've got to believe that God would provide you with this disposition. And it's human that, so you can latch hold of it. And it's divine so it can cover for your past sins. God's got to do it, in other words. And then third thing you have to believe or to embrace is to join other people who have embraced the good principle, he said. In other words, you've got to find people who are your friends, who see the world as being meaningful and respect you in your quest to try to be better. If you keep hanging out with the wrong people, you're going to revert to your humanness. You may believe God has converted you. You may believe in the good principle. You may try to rise up by your own strength to be a better person, but you're going to fail because you're going to be around people who are constantly dragging you down. Don't hang out with those people. Pick yourself up. Go elsewhere. Go to what he calls an ethical commonwealth. 
And that's a group of people who have been converted to the good principle. There you will find hope. There you will find meaning. Thanks, Khan. Um, I think everybody, uh, everybody knows that you got friends and you got real friends, <laughs> right? right? And the real friends are looking out for your highest good. They're looking out for you as an end in yourself. They want to see you be the best you can be and they'll do everything they can to make you the best you can be. Those are the people you want to hang out with. You know, um, I was living in, in some bad places myself. I understand what it means to be dragged down. At some point, you have to be converted out outside of that world. You have to pick up and leave. You have to go to where the blessing is, as a friend, friend once said to me. Uh, and it's there that you'll find kindred spirits in the ethical community. And, um, you know, most often, Khan says, and this is rather interesting in the final uh, book of his writing, he says you'll find that in the church. Now, I know church is not always what we want it to be. It can be hypocritical. I know a lot of people have left church because they say it's full of hypocrites. And it may well be, depending on what manifestation of the church you know. But let's be honest. Everybody's a hypocrite. This is not just a problem with the church. It's a problem with all of us. It's the human condition. But it's in the church where we at least have people who are organizing themselves around good principles, who are trying. They're trying to do something. Um, they're banding together and they're trying to hold each other accountable. Now, never perfectly, right? But Khan's point is that we need communities like that. Now, it could be a mosque. It could be something else. But it needs to be a place where people are uh, looking out for you and respecting you for who you are and what you're capable of becoming. And uh, this is where we find uh, meaning. This is where, as one author calls it, the maps of meaning can be located with other stories of other people who are questing after the same thing you are, to be truly human, to be what God meant you to be. And so... Uh, those are the three conditions he outlines in his religion text so as being necessary yeah. conditions for the possibility of knowing who you are and what your place is in this world. Otherwise, you're like a ship without a sail or a rudder or something along these lines. Wow. That was simply profound, if I may say. That was profound. And there's a lot there to unpack. I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative of your time. And I can see it in your eyes that you, you develop in that community around yourself, that sense of redemption as well. And, um, and in your own work, may God, uh, the, the true God truly continue to bless you and multiply what you're doing. And I'm, I'm just grateful for our friendship and, and, and your time. Yeah, thank you, Kildun. I appreciate it. Love, you know, these are the kinds of uh, conversations and stories that make life worth living, the kinds of relationships that are regenerative, right? They, mm -hmm. they, they actually mean something to us. Yes. And so I value your friendship as well and uh, this opportunity to talk about uh, some of these big questions and uh, um, some of the things that can help us to live meaningful lives. And I think you contributed to that. Thank you, brother. I look forward to seeing you soon. We'll get together for a drink or dinner or something. So we'll do that soon. Sounds great. Maybe at one of these conferences that we uh, love to attend. <laughs> yeah, <on>. definitely. <laughs> All right, brother. Thanks again. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. Right, Bye-bye.